Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, this is Matt Leggetti, your favorite comic book yeti. Did you know that if enough people listen to this podcast, advertisers give us money? Money we can then use to, say, pay our journalists. It's wild. Totally unrelated, we make this podcast using Anchor by Spotify. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Even Grant can do it, and he's a grandpa when it comes to technology. Love you, Grant. Let me fill you in on what some of us in the industry call reasons to believe. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more and they make it super easy. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor's totally free, which is great when you're, say, a comic book journalism website who lives on donations and boyish charm. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. And hey, I love you. You are listening to Into the Comics Cave with your host, comic book heartthrob, Grant Stoy. Hello, and thank you for tuning in yet again. We have a special guest today. Uh, I'm very excited to talk to him because we live sort of nearby, but have been just missing each other repeatedly. Uh, so please welcome my favorite T.E. Lawrence, Stan, and yours, Nick uh, Barnett. <laughs> Hey, it's great to be here. That is the best best description of me. Now, before we go into regular questions, I have to know, like, what is up with the T.E. Lawrence thing? Like, oh, you, um, you've made beautiful artwork of, of the guy, and I assume that you've read all that he has to offer. I have read a lot of what he has to offer. There's still a bunch that's, uh, I think most of it is out of classification, because a lot of like, because he was military um, intelligence, a good deal, not a good deal of it was classified for a long time. I think most of it's out, but I've read, I've read a lot of it. I've read Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is his primary book, uh, more times than any person really should. Um, <laughs> it is a dense book, but yeah, no, my, uh, I sort of, I was, I was trying to actually piece together like why I started reading about T. E. Lawrence. 
And I knew his name, but I didn't really know who he was. And I knew he was a real person, which I think most people don't know because they just like see, oh, Lawrence of Arabia is this movie and therefore it must be fiction. Um, it's, it is very fictionalized, but uh, he is he's a real person, not as handsome as P- Peter O'Toole. Um, who is? <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, so I uh, just sort of picked up a biography of him at my library because I had a habit when I was younger of just reading biographies of people that I didn't know anything about. And like, that's how I got into David Bowie and um, T.E. Lawrence is that I was just sort of like, oh, well, let me grab like this biography at the library and just sort of found, yeah, found, I find my people that way. Um, and I read it and I was just completely enamored with this very strange man who like brought a canoe to, um, to an archeological dig in Syria and, so it, was, it was on the, uh, I think it was on the, the either the Tigris or the Euphrates. I think it was on the Tigris River. And because oh, my geography is bad. So it was just like, of course, like, of course you're going to have a canoe. Yeah. Um, and like, was just this very interesting person who was interested in, um, in art and history and wanted to make a printing press and to like produce beautiful works. And it just really, uh, as a, 22 year old just heading off on a grand adventure. Cause I was, I was 22 and I was heading off to my, do my graduate degree at the university of Edinburgh, um, finding that we were actually similar in age when he first went to the middle East um, and that he had finished his undergraduate degree and was going off and uh, first doing research there for the undergraduate degree. And then um, when became an archeologist and just sort of found the age similarities sort of like, Oh, this is like someone that I'm, I'm interested in and has done cool and unexpected things. And from there it sort of turned into an all in all, like encompassing sort of like, this is like, encompassing interest. And while actually doing my degree, I was like, I really want to do something. I want to do an art piece related to Lawrence. And I wasn't quite sure how to incorporate it in with my degree, which was in design and digital media. Um, so I kept it in the back of my mind. And then, when I started making comics, it was like one of my friends asked me like, what, if you could do any project, what would it be? And I was just like, Oh, it would be a biography of T.E. Lawrence as, as a comic book. Um, and that just sort of stuck in the back of my head as like, this is a project that I really want to do. Um, and hopefully it's one, well, it's one that I'm working on. It's kind of taken us a back seat at the moment because I have um, other projects that I'm working on. Uh, that I look forward to one day being able to talk about, um, <laughs> hopefully in the not too distant future. Um, but he's he's taken the back seat a little bit, but is always always present. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Um, hopefully, we'll be doing a trip to. Hopefully, we'll be doing a trip to Jordan in March. Um, specifically, it's it's organized by a historian who's interested in the first world who focuses the first world war and um the british royal family of that era and um so she's running it and it's going to just be sort of be going through and learning about lawrence and um the arab revolt and we're going to be going to wadi Rum and petra and starting off in Aqaba and just sort of like going through the history of it at the locations um my fingers are very, very crossed that my name change documentation comes through sooner rather than later um, so that I can make sure that I can go on my trip. So um, that's going to be the most obnoxious thing. Yeah, it is. Um, but 
uh, as I was saying to my husband, I'm like, I hate that this is going to take so long. He's like, yeah, but you had this trip, which is like what forced you to get your paperwork in. It's like, you're right. You're right. So fortunately, once that all comes in, the, a lot of the, the gender marking rules have changed in Massachusetts. So you can just sort of rock on into the to the RMV and be like, my gender is this. And you don't have to provide any documentation. You can just say it. And now with um, passports, it's the same thing. Um, that rule was just passed like two weeks ago. It's got a lot of blue state. Yeah. Well, passports, <laughs> I'm surprised because it's, it's federal. So um, oh, that's true. yeah. Yeah. So that was a. That was a new thing. Uh, so that is that is my uh, mini rant about T.E. Lawrence, which I'm sure will be burning. Um, I think I was trying to remember when I also read Dune, and I think it was about the same time. I, there was like... Oh, Lord. There was a... Either I read Dune the summer before, or I read it that summer, because I also read um, To Their Scattered Bodies Go, uh, which is the first book in the Riverworld series um, at like the same time. And the main character of that book is um, Richard Burton. So I was reading a little bit about Richard Burton as well, who is a troublemaker. And it's a big diplomatic. That's the diplomatic way to describe Richard Burton. Um, uh, I, I lovingly refer to Lawrence as a shithead. I do not lovingly refer to, uh, to Burton as a shithead. Um, <laughs> but another fascinating individual who helped shaped orientalism and all that wonderful stuff listen so, to the sarcasm in my voice <laughs> oh it's dripping <laughs> so we just got some background on t.e lawrence yeah <laughs> let's get some background on that barnett Ned, yes where'd you grow up um i grew up in Derry, new hampshire um i am a new england boy born and bred um and yeah so i was yeah born born there grew up there um Lived in New Hampshire until I went to college down in Boston. And then I went and did my master's degree in Edinburgh. That was my attempt to flee the country. Um, <laughs> it did not go well. Um, all the immigration laws changed while I was a student. And they didn't grandfather in anyone who was currently a student. So I came back to Massachusetts. And um, I've been here since then. Uh, I studied English communications media studies as an undergraduate. And as I said already, designed in digital media as a graduate student. Before getting into comics, I founded co-founded a literary magazine based in Edinburgh, um, and we published poetry and short stories and launched a number of careers for Scottish poets um, and ran it for about four years. And it was like became really an integral part of um, the Scottish poetry scene. Uh, and that was sort of my my dip into self-publishing and. Um, creating works and sending it out to the world. And when I got into making comics, um, I was able to pull a lot on that and start making comics for myself. I've been a comic maker for about four years now. I can't quite remember when I started. Yeah, it's been great. Um, it's my longest abiding hobby. Uh, <laughs> and it's not a hobby anymore. It's now, my, it's now a job. <laughs> yeah. So when when did sequential art enter your life on the east coast was it east coast or was it in europe or like um so i grew up reading the newspaper uh because i couldn't get enough reading material so um my favorite thing to do was read the comic section so i am a newspaper strip uh kid political cartoons like i just i've just devoured anything comics related 
And so it's a lot of reading like Peanuts and and Zits was one of my favorite ones. Oh, yeah. Um, and I loved that Zits and Baby Blues were written by the same people. Like I enjoyed reading both of them. Um, and so that's a lot of like, my favorite one was was Pre-Tina, um, which I don't know of anyone else who's read it, but like it is an actual comic. Um, and it was about a preteen girl and her older sister who grew up in New Hampshire. She was like, Tina was this like major nerd and her older sister was this like, <laughs> like skinny fashion obsessed teenage girl. And it reminded me of my, my sister and myself, except for the ages were reversed because um, okay. I'm the older sibling. Yeah, so I like I remember reading that and loving it, and that was really one of the big things that got me into sequential art. Um, I read Disney Adventures obsessively and for far too long because that was the only way I could get comics. Um, we didn't have a comic book store anywhere near where I was growing up, so I didn't read comics like as a like true form until I was in um, high school when my library was starting to build a collection, and they had like some old X-Men comics, like collected editions and some old, like, um, so I read like really old Spider-Man as well, which was sort of like my intro to, to Cape comics um, was that the local newspaper was printing what had like each, I think it was like every week or once a month had a small, like reprinted version of the original Spider-Man comics. Oh, that's um, so like, that's how I got into reading them. And I was like, Oh, like this is, like Cape Comics was what I was really enjoyed reading at the time um, because that's really all I could get. Uh, got to got to college um, and didn't really read too many comics as I was really overwhelmed. I went into one of the local comic stores in Boston, Comicopia, which is an amazing store. If you love, they are the manga store of Boston. And I just walked in and I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know where to start. And I just like walked in, took one look and then turned around and left. Oh no. Um, (laughs) But I really got into reading them when I was in grad school. Um, The city of Edinburgh library near where I lived had a really good comic section. So I would go in and I was reading like, I'm like, okay, I know I need to read. Like these are the the names and capes. And I was really still just reading either Cape comic or Cape adjacent comics. Um, I'd read some Alan Moore. Um, like I read when I was in high school, read his stories for uh, that were published in like the short stories for DC. Yeah. Um, and then I was sort of like read all of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So that was sort of one of my my things was I'd go and I'd get a bunch of comics and I'd get a coffee and I'd sit down and I'd read a bunch of comics and drink coffee. Um, then when my my partner and I started dating, um, uh, I actually <laughs> he was trying to chat someone else up and was like, "Do you read comics?" And like on the other like. A couple tables over at the pub. Um, so we, we met through swing dancing and we all went to the pub afterwards. And I was just like, I read comics um, and proceeded to talk about Alan Moore. And I hadn't read Grant Morrison at the time. And he was like, well, you need to read Grant Morrison. Um, so our first official date was him giving me the first volume of um, the Invisibles and Blankets by Craig Thompson, and we joke that we're like now we're like you know in hindsight that may not have, those may not have been the best options for first comics. I was gonna say, but we had talked like he knew that I was reading Alan Moore, and he'd like mm-hmm. we had talked about um, my favorite TV show. What um, at the time was the was the Prisoner still remains one of my top shows. Um, it was not a completely out of context thing <laughs> to be lending someone. 
But the joke being now, it's like, why was it that one? And he didn't really warn me just how gory the pages got. So I was commuting from Edinburgh to Glasgow, um, just on the train, <laughs> reading the Invisibles, and opened up to one page. It was a very, I can't remember if it was a graphic sex scene or a graphic, like, head getting, like, blown <laughs> off. And I was like, we're not going to read this on the train anymore. Um, yeah. Tangentially... Related my my office was right next to um, uh, Frank Quitely's studio, which I Wait, didn't realize. Really? Yeah, I didn't realize it until about a year later. Um, I was watching a documentary about Frank Quitely with with some of my flatmates back in the back in the states, and they're like, they're showing it and like the general area, and I was like, wait a second, that like sign that you can see from his office. Like from 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 his office, like I would see that when I'd walk the corner, turn the corner. So it's like I knew right where he was he was based because that was where my office was. Um, and, yeah, I know, and I never met him because I didn't know that's where his office, where his uh, studio was. <laughs> and now I, I do wonder those like did I run like did I physically run into him at some point because that's a very high likelihood. <laughs> I bet that you two struck up a conversation waiting for coffee at one point. Probably, and but I wouldn't. We weren't talking about comics if, if we if we did, <laughs> of course. Um, because I at the time was a very serious uh, communications business professional. Um, yeah, uh, and I was also incredibly shy, so I wasn't talking to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> now, you you just said you were shy. Did that factor into your wanting to just devour everything in terms of reading? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was the whole growing up as a, like, shy, undiagnosed ADHD kid um, and trying to, like, trying to understand the world. So I just read all the time. And um, I miss a lot of that. I don't really get don't really get the chance or have the brain power anymore uh, to sit down and do it because grad school destroyed my brain. Uh, <laughs> it's it's been nine years. I should stop saying that it destroyed my brain, but it it's <laughs> it, no no it destroyed. You don't understand. Um, I've I've worked in my jobs outside of comics has been working in higher ed. Um, so I've been working at various universities around the greater Boston area for the last eight years. And every time it's been like, oh, Ned, you could do a, you could do a degree at this very famous, very prestigious upstanding university that uh, is, is red and rhymes with Schmarbird. Um, and because you worked there and I just sort of went, no, it's like 500 bucks for a master's degree. I don't want to do it. Uh, <laughs> what did grad school do to you? <laughs> it destroyed me, and now I make comics because I can research what I want to, and I don't have to worry about grades. Uh, That's a good point, yeah, yeah. So, um, where did your your art start coming from? Uh, so, I just like was drawing since I could pick up a pencil, and um, would go through periods of doing a lot of drawing or not doing very little drawing. Um, drew a lot, like in college and grad school and then sort of fell off it um and so it's been very much a like start 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 and stop um for the last while and I've been since sort of sitting down and determining that I want to do comics I've been really 
focusing on doing a lot more art. Uh, pandemic sort of destroyed my drawing for a long time. Um, I was drawing a daily comic for the first like three or four months of the pandemic. I can't remember how long it was. It was like March to May. Um, and I was spending about matter. it yeah. doesn't matter. I promptly forgot that I did it as soon as I stopped drawing it. And it was like two months later, I was like, I haven't drawn anything. And there's this whole stack of comics. And I did like a several hundred page webcomic and was spending like four hours a day on this thing and forgot I did it. But yeah, so I sort of was taking, took a extended break on drawing at that point and actually playing D and D with my friends is what really got me back into doing it, um, doing art and getting really excited about drawing again. Um, and because I play with a bunch of artists and it just, we're just constantly drawing our characters as anyone who follows me on Twitter knows. <laughs> um, and just sharing it with each other. And we've, it's been a really great opportunity to like a hang out with people, hang out with friends and make friends. And also just like push my art in a, in a way that that feels good. I switched entirely to digital. I had been working only physical or traditional media and um in so i think the last the last physical comics i drew is i did a, a strip for um king features they did a uh they're doing a flash gordon um anniversary celebration and i did a i did that mixed physical and uh, traditional and digital um i drew it all traditionally and then i colored it digitally um and then i did a comic for um Away Blue World's uh, embodied anthology. And that was the last comic that I drew traditionally. And since then, I've only been doing digital. And so really sped up my workflow. Um, and I've been able to really see a lot of leaps and bounds as I've been able to experiment with that, sort of experiment with techniques like mimicking oil painting yeah. um, and just sort of pushing, pushing myself a lot more. And I'd really having fun again with doing art because I was getting very frustrated with with drawing and with my own style and like improving and not improving and really this last year haven't really been doing haven't really been drawing comics I've been writing a lot more my focus has really been switching to writing um, but I've been able to through having my D&D friends and playing D&D all the time and making little assets for that, just really being able to push myself in new directions and finding the fun in art again. It's as, as someone who it's like art is my job. It's something I love doing. Um, but sometimes when it is your job, you, you lose the joy. Um, oh yeah. And... I think that's true with like anything that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I've, I found the last few weeks, like, since I've, I've gone back to work in the office, um, I work is uh, part-time um, doing uh, marketing as a marketing assistant for another university here um, for their libraries. Um, and uh, my legacy there will be expanding the library. The, the, my legacy there is, um, is that we're allowed to request any books that we want. So um, I have just been going like, I want to read this manga that is 27 volumes long. I don't want, I don't have the space for a 27 volume manga and um, ordering it through the library. Uh, so I've just been spending a lot of time at the office and not really able to draw because I'm like at the office and right. uh, coming home and trying to determine what my art 
like what yeah the art the the art time versus the writing time versus D and D time versus everything else has been tough. But like I've been enjoying like the last two nights just coming home and just saying I'm just going to draw. I know I need to write, but like what I really want to do is I just want to draw, and just giving myself the space to to do that has been lovely. Uh, so when do you sleep? Do you sleep? I don't think I sleep. do sleep. I do what? sleep. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I, I make a point. Um, I'm the joke. Uh, the, <laughs> the joke with, with some of my friends is that I am a force of nature with a very strict bedtime. <laughs> um, and I'm typically asleep by 10 o'clock every night. What? How do you do all this stuff and still sleep at 10 o'clock? Because sleep is important and I'm old. <laughs> um, no, so I, when I was working full time and trying to do comics um, and, uh, and that was when I was working out daily and cooking daily and I was still getting to sleep at a normal time, but I was, I was exhausted um, and really not able to deal with uh with working a full-time job um, on top of everything else. And I just realized I needed to prioritize sleep. There are days that I just don't get anything done. Um, and I just have sort of learned that I need to just accept those days and schedule in like one day a week, like a, either Saturdays or Sundays where I just say, you know, I'm not doing any work today. And I might draw. That's not, if it's just sort of drawing for fun. And that's sort of the day that I do a lot of my chores um, and that sort of thing. But it's uh, it's sleep is be- sleep is a priority. And because if I don't get enough sleep, then I can't do anything else. Um, that you are such a sensible old man. I am as because I have run myself ragged <laughs> as a 23 year old. <laughs> so I, have a, I have a very important question for you. Yes. Would you rather uh, every time you sneeze, just a, a plume of feathers popped out or every time you farted just like a little cloud of flower petals came out as soon as you said sneeze or i was like i knew the next one's gonna be fart well yeah um, it's, it's, they're, they're diametrically opposed uh yeah <laughs> i think the flower petals while farting solely because i have allergies and i feel like the um having having feathers up my nose would actually uh <laughs> cause my allergies to act up. So I would constantly be sneezing and constantly be having feathers coming out of my nose. So see, that just makes me want to see that though. <laughs> also, I- that's like the feathers are just tickle your nose all the time and you just be sneezing. And I like, I have to do the, the, the weekly like COVID tests. Oh gosh. And so it's like to go on campus. It's like, I have to do this once a week. And I do it at home and I have to stick the thing up my nose and it always makes me sneeze. And like, I just can just imagine just constantly having feathers up there that are just constantly be sneezing. Now on the, on the other end, <laughs> with the, the farting flower, flower petals, it's like you're wearing pants. Yeah. You just have this collection of potpourri that you're constantly sitting on. Does this- it, that would be that would be uncomfortable, but it's like if you're working from home, you can just say like, "Oh, I have to fart," and then you just go to the bathroom <laughs> and just take your pants off and fart, <laughs> or dump out the pants afterwards. It's just not pleasant either way. You know what? There's somewhere in this world, there's someone that probably does take their pants off to fart, and that just makes everything probably. so much better. Like, oh, it's it's time to fart. 
Okay, okay pets are coming off. Do you think probably you a pets? baby? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have pets? No, I have plants. <sighs> okay, because I was gonna say if there's a pet present, I feel like the fart feather conundrum would only be intensified because which one would they enjoy more? Uh, I think if you had a cat, they'd probably enjoy the feathers more. Um, because there'd just be constantly things to play with. And I think a dog would get scared. <laughs> and plus the dog would like, be you've like, seen those videos of like dogs when they fart and they're just like, yeah. what was that? Okay. Like, imagine like. <laughs> now just with the farting pedals in this scenario, do you think that would, what kind of sound would that make? Would it be more of a, or would it, or would it be more <laughs> like slappy? Oh, I don't know. I think it'd be like, I, I'd hope it'd be more of a like. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad people can't like this is a podcast so you can't see that i just gestured with my hand just like as feathers like uh, feathers uh, flower petals just opening up it's very demonstrative and yes this should be a a visual medium (laughs) we'll just take the gif we'll just make a gif of that little portion of me just going (laughs) and now we've reached a point where we have five questions we ask folks uh who join us and these are based off the James Lipton Inside the Actor Studio questions, which, are you familiar with that lunatic? Yeah. I haven't watched Inside Actor Studio in a long time, but oh yeah. I, I love how weirdly intense he can get. Number one, what is your favorite sound effect? Ooh. So this is an interesting question because uh, the sister degree to my master's degree was sound design. No um, kidding! Yeah, so I didn't really do anything related to sound design i did a little bit for my one and only short film um but i really i really love just like hearing about my friends who did the course and like how they would go out and collect sounds um but i'm i'm a simple man i just i like the sort of like the very basic like sort of how people like like the just so walking on stones and that sort of thing and i love looking like the like watching behind the scenes stuff like watching like lord of the rings behind the scenes and like learning how they did like this sound effect and this sound effect actually take that back speaking lord of the rings behind the scenes uh the nazgul scream because it's a donkey really yeah it's like they just were recording a donkey and it was just like trying to find this like supernatural like otherworldly screech and they found it and it was like yeah so i i love i love like just that sound design so often isn't what the what the recording that they make isn't what you think it is that obviously mm-hmm. like nazgul don't exist um but screaming theoretically donkeys, theoretically screaming donkeys do um so you're not going to actually get that like get an actual nazgul scream but like just and the sort of things like we think that things set like that things sound a certain way but in order to get that sound for a movie, like you have to record something completely different. Um, Number two, what is something about the medium of sequential art that you love? It's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's just the, the very basic. And then the, the serious answer is um, I, I really love the way that, uh, that it has image and text mixed together in a way that, can really uh excuse me as a hiccup um how dare you it i know how how dare me drink coffee and then have to hiccup (laughs) really just makes your brain work in a different way and it's like how does the text relate to the image and how can we have like 
the like a dialogue or a voiceover box and the someone's expression is that working in a different way how does just like shots like cinematography like how does how does this convey a feeling alan moore's promethea uh which is a spectacular spectacular book um it's one of our favorites we realized we had rent lent out the first like two volumes to someone at some point and they never gave it back so we had to we recently had to replace it with the beautiful three volume edition um and but there's a whole section of it that talks about sequential art and specifically talks about sequential art as as a learning tool and how it makes your brain work. And because I do a lot of um, history and graphic medicine comics, it's mm-hmm. like how how do I evoke feelings with a very limited amount of space? And that's something I love about sequential arts and sort of pushing it. And how can I how can I make things feel like they're moving faster? How can I make things feel like they're moving slower? And and then like just the it's pretty. It's like if you read reading books like um, Witch Hat Atelier is one of the most gorgeous comics. And I sat down and did a did a page study of it, and just it like it was just this one like page with the the main character Coco just like looking at a, at a spell and just like these globs of ink. Just the way that the the uh, mangaka uh, Kamome Shirihama, Shirihama um, the way that she draws it is just this really, really gorgeous. Um, the lines and all—you don't think that they're connected, but it's like there's a swoop of of Coco's mentor's cape, um, and it just swooped into this panel. And it wasn't the cape itself doing the swooping; it was like just the way that the the way that the ink blots and the way that the shadows and everything just moved, and it's just like. It's just a, a page that they sort of was like, oh, this might, might it's not a throwaway page because like, right. but it's a page that you're sort of like, this is this is not like a big action page, and it just its composition was just like, chef's kiss, absolutely perfect. <laughs> I I love that, um, and I love looking at how just different people draw and how, yeah, it's yeah, it's I wouldn't be into it if it wasn't something beautiful. And the follow-up to this one is, what is something about the medium of sequential art that you dislike? Takes so fucking long to make. It does. And it is, like, absolutely so quick to read. And as as a creator of comics, um, I, I feel so bad when I sit down and I read a trade or a graphic novel and it takes me like an hour and a half to read if that and and I know I, I get, just go to myself like I know that this took like two to three years to make and I read it in 45 minutes <laughs> and and the, a lot of books like that may be the only time I read it there other books like I'll go back and I'll read it again and again and again and reference um but it's just one of those things that's like I know how much time and how much physical pain and energy and labor went into it and how short it is to write. I also hate sort of follow up to this is how badly paid we are. Oh my gosh. Yeah. For how much labor we do and that people just outside of comics are just like, Oh, it's just drawing a pretty picture. It's like, it's, and even I think with, within comics, because it's, it's so badly paid for me the professional publishers aren't paying people a lot and 
so people are accepting really low rates from other creators. And I am very much a, if you're going to be working for very low money, just do it yourself. And because you don't have to worry about rights or getting fucked over by a create by by a collaborator and like and this is I, I do I collaborate regularly like I but I'm very picky about who I collaborate with um, and um, like who like if there's not a contract in place it's like do I really want to do this um, and just very much like I'm, I'm very protective of my time because. Like everyone's been either has horror stories or they've been taken advantage of in the past. Um, and it's, it's not a nice feeling. And it's one of those, if I'm going to, if I'm going to bust my hand, if I'm going to break my hand drawing something, then either I better be getting paid for it or I'm going to self-produce it. So I get some money out of it. Um, oh, hell yeah. So, yeah. Which is very uh, uh, jaded of me, but I'd say more pragmatic than anything else. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've been. It's like I'm. I'm. I'm still like new in comics. Like I've only been around making comics for four or five years now. But it's. I'm. I'm very, very pragmatic. After doing Dreamers of the Day, which was my T.E. my first T.E. Lawrence book, and I wrote it and I drew it. And I produced it in six months. Why? I made the. I took the trip in the beginning of March. 2019 and then I debuted the book at SPX which was the second week of September 2019 um so from the trip that I made to completion it was it was probably closer to five months that I did that was a 140 page book uh never do that just, <laughs> just don't I was exhausted afterwards like I made this book and then I just didn't pick up a pencil for a few months afterwards, like just because I had so physically and emotionally just drained myself. And if you're doing something, if you're going to be putting in that much effort for something, or even a quarter as much effort for something, like you, you best be sure that you're going to get paid, unless it's something that you're doing for yourself. And if you're doing it for yourself, don't take six months to do a 140 page book. That is <laughs> stupid. That's yeah, that's not healthy. No, no. Um, but I was so fresh and full of vim and vigor for making comics because I had just quit my day job. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, that kind of rolls into uh, number four. Uh, what's your favorite curse word that's not a curse word? Uh, that is difficult. Because my favorite curse word that I used a lot when I was younger was definitely a curse word. But because I'm from New Hampshire, no one knew it was a curse word. Um, so I would use bugger a lot, uh, which is is a it is definitely a curse word is a very english curse word um because that's that's essentially just fucking a different uh right? it's a specific type of fucking um so it's uh flower, it is flower pedal farting fucking? it's not flower pedal, pedal farting but uh um if if you are being fucked where you fart for flower petals is 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 buggering um but i worked at a daycare and i was just like i i couldn't I mean, I also didn't really swear at the time, but I, I would just use bugger and like kids don't know any different. Um, mm-hmm. They just think it's funny. They they were thinking I was saying I was saying buggy. Um, <laughs> but I had to explain a joke in. Um, I had explained a joke to my senior English class uh, for uh, in the musical version of Voltaire's Candide because they did a play on beggary and buggery. And I was the only person who laughed. 
So I then had to explain it to everyone. But I guess, yeah, I'm not sure what my favorite curse word that isn't a curse word because I just have fully embraced being a Bostonian and I just say fuck all the time. It's very Um, cathartic. Yeah. Between school and now living in Boston and being married to a Brit and living in Scotland, it's just like fuck is just the... It's just... (laughs) That is the curse word. That is just the curse word. It's not a curse word. It It is an adjective. It is a verb. It is a noun. It is everything that you could possibly want in in a word. Um, so versatile. It's it is it is the most versatile word. No, this is the last one. Are you ready? No, but <laughs> let's say there's a heaven, mm-hmm. and you've uh, just been murdered by a wayward lobster roll. You show up at the pearly gates and are greeted by Jacob Kurtzberg, aka Jack Kirby himself. What does he say to you? <laughs> Why didn't you learn how to draw better? <laughs> Why didn't you focus on the basics, kid? <laughs> Why'd you do 140 pages in five and a half months? No, he would have been like, it took you five and a half months <laughs> to do that? Jeez, man, that's slow. I always do 140 pages a week. <laughs> and then I would have words with him about um, about uh, uh, archaeology and how the Eternals and such uh, have increased the uh, ancient aliens um, propaganda, um, and give him cited works from one of my favorite archaeologists that I follow on Twitter, is David S. Anderson, who is actually his his area of interest is the um, Mesoamerican people, and he writes about ancient aliens and comics and how comics and other pop culture um, are contributing to ancient aliens and racism and white supremacy, and it's really interesting stuff, and it's like Working in comics, it's like, yes, I'm aware, like, this is great to be aware of. And it's just like, it's another type of, like, cultural supremacy. And, like, I'm glad that someone is doing the work. <laughs> you can be so. like, Jack, you've got all eternity. Just, just yeah. stuff. Yeah, just like, Jack, please, please, like, <laughs> please, can you just, just go back, land on Earth, and go, like, I renounce ancient aliens. Like, fuck those guys. I was like, Eric Von Daniken can go suck it. And like, this this will end it. (laughs) He will not be happy with me. Yeah, well, you know. And then we'd high five for for punching Nazis. Um, Oh, yeah. I feel like that's the best way to to end any conversation. Yeah. Speaking of ending conversations, Ned. Yes. Where can people find you on the socials? Um, so I am on all of the internet as the Ned Barnett, um, either on Twitter, Instagram, um, and TikTok uh, as at the Ned Barnett. Um, my TikTok is very boring, but I like to send D and D videos to my friends. Um, and I'm also like my website is thenedbarnett.com. Um, that is Barnett with two T's at the end, and I can. I can. You can buy my books. Um, I have already paid a lot of money for my books. Please get them off of my hands um, from the nedbarnett.storeenv.com. Store Envy only has one E in it. And my online shop is managed by the lovely people at White Squirrel, who is it's a small um, women-owned company in the Pacific Northwest. And they handle a lot of artists' online stores. And they are lovely. And if you buy my books then you're also supporting them so, right oh yeah. and uh if people want to tune into some D goodness uh yes D goodness um i play D uh on the going critical channel with um fabian lele uh 
Jess Taylor, Lauren Walsh, Nicta Hurst, and um, Emily Pearson. Um, we play on Mondays and Fridays most of the time. Um, and uh, you can find us on Going Critical. Uh, our going no, Going Crit <laughs> RPG is our handle on Twitter and Twitch and our website. And um, if you want to see spicy art that I draw uh, regularly, um, you can support us on our Patreon, uh, which is Patreon slash Going Crit RPG. It's good fun. I love spice D&D. Must flow. Yeah, spice must flow. Um, I really need to make that that really dumb. I drew a sand. I drew a sandworm from Dune with a with a scarf on it, and it says the pumpkin spice must flow. I drew this last year while chatting with my friend Alex, and I forgot about it. And then with all the Dune jokes, I remembered that I drew it, and that is like the dumbest thing that I've ever drawn. But I love it. I need to make a sticker of it. Um, I was gonna say T-shirt because I know one person that would buy it, and that's that's me. Yeah, <laughs> I will. I'll have to refine the design before I make a T-shirt <laughs> because it's very very sketchily drawn. But it was uh, it'd be difficult to print. But it it was very ridiculous, and I love it. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. This has been a Comic Book Yeti production. You can find new episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and anywhere podcasts stream. For more information on the Comic Book Yeti, please visit comicbookyeti.com. And for more of Grant, visit grantstoy.com or on Twitter at Grant and Stuff. What's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now